0: Our Constitution is a document in which we, the people, tell the government what it is allowed to do. We, the people, are
1: free. Once again, we welcome you to Constitution Classroom here on the Loving Liberty Radio Network. And we are with Colonel John Eidsmo from the Foundation for Moral Law. Well, Colonel, uh, Thanksgiving is fast approaching. And I understand you've got a topic that uh, dovetails very nicely with that national holiday.
0: Well, I certainly hope so. I suspect most of our listeners have heard of the Mayflower Compact. Possibly a few have read it, but I wonder how many have really analyzed its meaning. I found myself a few weeks ago inheriting the position as chairman of the Plymouth Rock Foundation. This is a wonderful organization in Plymouth, Massachusetts, although it has a nationwide impact. Paul Jayley is the president, and so is chairman of the board. I work very closely with him. But the purpose of the foundation is to preserve the ideals of the pilgrims, to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ, but as understood not only through Scripture, but through the eyes of the pilgrims as well, and to also research the history of the pilgrims, to publicize that research, and help America to understand the pilgrim vision. As a result, I have been in Plymouth the past week, holding a board meeting and participating in many lectures and other activities there, and I'd like to talk a little bit about the Plymouth Rock experience and what exactly happened there. Some of our listeners, I'm sure, have been to Plymouth before and have seen the rock, and I can only say about the rock, Gibraltar, it is not. It is... A big rock, but I mean it's maybe you might say maybe the size of a small car, although really not even not even that big, but it's surrounded by pillars, and I have joked that if the pillars had not been there, the pilgrims probably wouldn't have found it, but obviously they were erected much later, of course, in fact, in the early seventeen hundreds, I believe it was, there was a man. Who he is 95 years of age, who has to be taken down to the harbor there and pointed to that rock and assured his people that this was, in fact, the rock that they had actually stepped on when they came ashore. Well, what then is the Mayflower Compact? And perhaps we should ask first, who were these pilgrims? Well, the pilgrims came from England and... William Bradford is probably the best known of them. Bradford had been an orphan and had largely taught himself to read using the Scripture, and through the Scripture he had come to the conclusions that the Church of England was wrong on some things, and so he associated with the dissenting or separatist churches instead. And the pilgrims in their theology were very much like the Puritans, that is, they held Calvinist theology. The Puritans got their name because they wanted to purify the Church of England. The pilgrims held the same theology. They, too, thought the Church of England was heretical and corrupt, but they disagreed with the Puritans in that they saw no point in trying to purify the Church of England. It was a lost cause, and all we could do, in their view, was to separate from it and establish a church of our own, And so they became separatists, as they were called, and as separatists, they needed to deal with persecution in a way that the Puritans did not. Now, to get away from that persecution, many of them decided that they would travel to the Netherlands and to particularly a town in the Netherlands called Leiden. They had quite an influence in Leiden. In fact, William Brewster, one of their number- Was placed on the faculty of the University of Leiden to teach English. And another John Robinson enrolled in the university there to get his doctoral degree. They would participate on the side of the Calvinists in some of the debates going on in Holland at the time against the Arminians, that is, those who didn't see the grace of God in quite the sovereign way that the Calvinists did. But Their experience there taught them a few things. One of the things they learned in Holland was the concept that government is by social contract. They didn't get that from John Locke. John Locke is a couple of generations later. They derived that from the Dutch. And in the Dutch there, particularly Hugo Grotius, who was both a prime minister and diplomat, as well as a theologian, they learned this concept that government is not something imposed by the top down. It is something that we, the people, put together as we form a contract for government. And the Mayflower Compact is, in fact, that kind of a social compact. Another thing they learned from the Dutch is the idea of decentralized government. In Holland, you had one central government there that was really just kind of like a confederation of the States of the Netherlands, but within the Netherlands, you had these various states that were semi-autonomous joined together in this league or confederacy. And they hadn't seen that in England. That's an idea that the pilgrims learned from the Dutch. And, of course, that became a basis for the American Articles of Incorporation and Constitution, as well as for the New England Confederation that they formed several decades after they landed. But another thing they found, as they were in the Netherlands, was that yes, the Netherlands practiced religious toleration, but in their toleration, the Dutch also had a lot of immoral people, and many times were very immoral themselves. That they tolerated a great deal of heresy. That, as Bradford and the Pilgrims saw it, this caused them to be very degenerate in their society, and this kind of modified their view a little bit of religious liberty and of toleration itself. Yes, they didn't want the kind of persecution that they had in England, but they saw that unfettered toleration could lead to licentiousness, immorality, heresy, and a breakdown of society. And so they wanted liberty, but they wanted liberty under law. And they knew there needed to be laws to restrain liberty and that liberty would not work without a solid moral base, the kind of moral base that Christianity provides. And so when they left the Netherlands around 1619 and prepared to sail from England then to North America, they had a view of religious liberty that was different from the Puritans and certainly different from the Church of England, but also different from what they'd seen in Holland and probably what they had held earlier. Now they knew that liberty... Had to be based upon law. Anyway, so they then sailed from England to the United States, and wasn't the United States at that time, of course, it was North America. And they did so through the Virginia Company that had established the Virginia Colony. And the Virginia Colony, the Virginia Company did have some influence on them. It was probably because of the Virginia Company that they chose to come to North America instead of one of the leading alternatives, which was South America. And anyway, so they were coming to, as they say in the compact, to establish a colony in the northern parts of Virginia. Now, where are the northern parts of Virginia? Well, that's a little hard to say because Virginia at that time didn't have clear borders. We had a fair idea where the southern part of Virginia ended, and North Carolina began, but where the northern boundaries of Virginia might be, that really wasn't clear at all. But they were blown off course by a storm, and as a result, they found themselves in New England, and as I say, we don't know exactly where the northern parts of Virginia were, but they knew this isn't Virginia anymore. And so, they realized then that they were outside the jurisdiction of the Virginia colony and the Virginia Company. And that was providential, because it meant they were now free to establish their own system of government. It also meant that they would have greater liberty because a number of those that came with them were indentured servants. That is, that the Virginia Company, to planters in Virginia, had agreed to pay for their passage to North America, but in return, once they came to North America, they would then be indentured servants to those planters for a period of time, commonly four years to seven years. But now that they weren't landing in Virginia, they were no longer indentured servants. And so a new idea of freedom arises. Another thing we need to understand is that of those who came on that late Mayflower, there were 102 passengers, and of that 102, about half of them were pilgrims. The other half are what they call strangers, those that didn't necessarily share the pilgrim beliefs, but nevertheless wanted to come to America for economic reasons. Now, here's the situation. When they came to the Plymouth Harbor, those strangers thought, okay, we're free now to do anything we want. But Brewster and Bradford said, no, that will never work. We need to establish a system of government so before they came ashore, they drafted this Mayflower Compact.
1: To Constitution Classroom here on the Loving Liberty Radio Network. We are with Colonel John Eidmo from the Foundation for Moral Law, learning a little bit about the Mayflower Compact.
0: Well, I've been in Plymouth for the past several days. There I've been staying at a house that is known as the Leiden House. It Was originally built way, way back in the days of the Pilgrims, and it looks out over the Plymouth Harbor. It's a beautiful place. But in front of the Blyden House, there is a large lawn and kind of like a park. And there is good historical reason to believe that that park, that area, was where the Pilgrims and the Wampanoag, that is, the Native American tribe that was prominent in that area at the time led by Chief Massasoit there is a large statue of Chief Massasoit that looks out over the harbor there but that they sat down together and negotiated a peace treaty and that peace treaty held and preserved peace between the Pilgrims and the Wampanoag for over 50 years Now, the Leiden Preservation Group is another group in Plymouth that I work with along with the Plymouth Rock Foundation, and they have just recently produced a beautiful book. I guess, I'm sorry, I forgot. This is teller radio, not television, so you can't (laughs) see it. But if you were to go to the Leiden Preservation Group, you would bring up their website. And you could order this book, but it is beautiful photography plus quotations by Donald Trump, by Ronald Reagan, by Daniel Webster and many others about the pilgrims. And the Mayflower Compact itself is in there, as well as many of the landmarks that we see there in Plymouth at this time. But the Mayflower Compact is there. And I'm going to suggest that right now, Let's read the Mayflower Compact to see what it actually says. It is quite short, actually. Begins with the words, In the name of God, Amen. We whose names are underwritten, the loyal subjects of our dread sovereign Lord King James, by the grace of God of Great Britain, France, and Ireland, King, Defender of the Faith, etc., having undertaken for the glory of God and advancement of the Christian faith and honor of our king and country, a voyage to plant the first colony in the northern parts of Virginia, do by these presents solemnly and mutually in the presence of God and one of another, covenant and combine ourselves together in the civil body politic for our better ordering and preservation and furtherance of the ends aforesaid and by virtue hereof to enact, constitute, and frame such just and equal laws, ordinances, acts, constitutions, and offices, from time to time, as shall be thought most meet and convenient for the general good of the colony, under which we promise all due submission and obedience. In witness whereof, we have hereunto subscribed our names at Cape Cod, the 11th of November, In the year of the reign of our sovereign Lord King James of England, France, and Ireland, the 18th, and of Scotland, the 54th, Anno Domini, that is year of our Lord, 1620, there is the Mayflower Compact. Now that we have read it, let's get an idea as to what it is actually saying here. First of all, what they are doing, they are doing in the name of God. God is behind this entire endeavor. And it was their belief that government comes from God. But here in this regard, they had a conflict with the English monarchy. King James, in light, in keeping with the thinking that went through much of Europe at that time, France and other parts of Europe, believed in what he called the divine right of kings. In fact, James was quite a scholar. And as he drafted a treatise himself explaining the basis for his belief that Kings have divine authority and therefore absolute authority He quotes extensively from the Bible out of context in my opinion, but he does so to support his position now the pilgrims like the Puritans also believed that government is of divine authority, but they put it together in a different way, and the difference here is lines of authority. As King James and the monarchists saw it, God is the source of all governmental authority. He delegates that authority to kings. Kings delegate some of their authority to lesser rulers, local officials, and so on. And together, under God, they rule over the people. Now, the pilgrims and the Puritans would agree God is the source of all governmental authority. But as they saw it, God gives that authority to the people. The people then delegate authority. Here's where social contract comes in again. The people delegate that authority to lesser rulers, local officials. They, in turn, delegate that authority to the higher ruler, the king or the president, and so he rules over the people but does so under authority that has been given to him by the lower rulers, and their authority comes from the people whose authority comes from God. How do you put that together? Well, my native state of South Dakota, I think, put it together very well in their state motto, which was drafted by a pastor. My father knew the pastor's son. They were friends. But anyway, South Dakota's state motto says, Under God, the people rule. That puts it together beautifully. And if we just say all power to the people, then we have things like the French Revolution. If we say that under God, kings rule, then we have authoritarian and absolute monarchy. Under God, the people rule puts it together perfectly. And that's the way the pilgrims would have seen it. And that's part of the basis of their disagreement with King James. But nevertheless even though they don't agree with King James, and even though King James doesn't like them, as King James said, they will conform, or I will harry them out of the land. Nevertheless, they opened the Mayflower Compact with a recognition of his authority. Look to those words again. We whose names are underwritten, the loyal subjects of our dread sovereign Lord King James, At this time, the idea that we're going to establish an independent nation hasn't yet occurred to them. That won't come until quite some time later. But they recognize his authority. His authority, they say, is by the grace of God, of Great Britain, France, and Ireland, king. Great Britain, well, we understand that. England, Scotland, and Wales. But of Ireland, well, that is a disputed claim, but they recognize it and of France. In fact, there is a real disputed claim, but even going back into the 1300s, the English kings claimed to have rightful authority over the throne of France. That led to Agincourt and other battles in earlier years like this, but the Puritan or pilgrim colonists here of the Mayflower are willing to recognize that King James even has authority over France, and they also called him Defender of the Faith. Now you recall what had happened here a century earlier, and that is that Henry VIII, who was the King of England, and England at that time was a Roman Catholic country, but Henry VIII saw something of what was going on in Germany and other parts of Europe with the Protestant Reformation, and he had opposed many of Luther's doctrines, in fact, He wrote a treatise criticizing Luther, for which the pope awarded him the Defender of the Faith Medal, which was hereditary. But when he wanted to annul his marriage to Catherine of Aragon, so he could marry Anne Boleyn instead, the pope refused to agree. So he separated the Church of England from the Catholic Church and made it a separate church with himself as the head, defender of the faith. They're even willing to give him that title. Let's go on after the break.
1: once again to Constitution Classroom on the Loving Liberty Radio Network. We're with Colonel John Eitzmo from the Foundation for Moral Law. Colonel, I'm a little bit surprised to hear uh, Henry VIII described as a defender of the faith. That one caught me off guard.
0: Well, frankly, it had catch me a little off guard, too, because I don't look at him as a particularly pious believer, although he would have called himself a Christian. And as I say, at the time he separated from the Roman Catholic Church, He did not dispute Catholic doctrine. In fact, like I say, he was a critic of Luther. During his time as king, he gradually moved more and more toward a Protestant position. But the interesting thing, too, is this is the first time in the history of the West, so far as I can tell, that the king is also the head of the church. Even in Roman Catholicism in the Middle Ages, you see these two kingdoms, church and state, and they interact with each other in a lot of ways, some of which are inappropriate. But even in those days, you don't, don't find kings acting as popes or popes acting as kings, and at least on paper. The authority is different and you have two kingdoms. Here we have the two united together. And in fact, that's an interesting concept as we look to our First Amendment, because when the framers of the First Amendment are talking about an establishment of religion. By an establishment of religion, they mean the kind of establishment that the framers came over here from Europe to get away from. The kind in England where you have the king as the head of the church. I assure you, these pilgrims and others, you know they came here to find the freedom to worship God as they believed that he should be worshipped. But they didn't come over here to get away from prayer at football games. It wasn't anything like that. And their view of religious freedom would probably be quite different from the way many people here view religious freedom today. Moving on, though, we look further when they say that they are establishing this colony in the northern parts of Virginia, but now they're blown off course, so they're free to draw their own articles. there in New England. And so they combine themselves together into this civil body politic, as they call it, purpose being for our better ordering and preservation, in other words, they recognize that we can't live in anarchy, we have to have law and order, and we need government to enforce law and order, but also, it says, for our better ordering and preservation and furtherance of the ends aforesaid. What ends are those? The glory of God and the advancement of the Christian faith. Advancing the Christian faith Bringing a colony here into these lands, first of all, for the purpose of evangelizing the native people that they see around them. And by the way, I'm going to do a little aside here. One of the most interesting features of this past weekend there in Plymouth was that we had representatives from the First Nations there. By the First Nations, I mean what we often call American Indians. We had a chief of the Mohawk tribe who is now the Mohawks were part of the Iroquois Confederacy. We had a chief from the Lakota, several from the Lakota there in Western South Dakota and Montana. We had a chief of the Apache, a chief of the Navajo and several others. And to be able to converse with them about these things and be joined with them in the desire to put past animosities aside and to recognize that God used this event to bring the Christian religion here into this Western Hemisphere. So, the advancement of the Christian faith. But there's another part of the advancement of the Christian faith. And that's that these are very, very fiercely Protestant Christians. Now, what of Christianity in this Western Hemisphere? Well, to the south of them, in fact, as far north as Florida, and then point south from Florida, we have Spanish Catholicism. To the north of them in Canada and to the west of them, we have French Catholicism. Part of their purpose here is to bring a beachhead of Protestantism to the Western Hemisphere, but also to evangelize the Native Americans that they find here. So, the furtherance of the ends aforesaid, the glory of God and the advancement of the Christian faith. Now, because of this, they say, based upon this compact, We will enact and frame such just and equal laws, ordinances, acts, constitutions, and offices, from time to time as shall be thought most meet and convenient. Okay, just and equal laws. Not just we're going to pass any laws we feel like. The laws we are going to pass, the constitutions we are going to enact, and the institutions we are going to establish have to be just, And they have to be equal. Just, meaning in accord with the higher law of God. Years later, Jefferson reflects that concept in the Declaration of Independence, when he would say that we are entitled to our independence by the laws of nature, and of nature's God. Just laws and equal laws. The idea that laws are to be equal, again, is a biblical concept. And it's going to affect what we say later in the 14th Amendment, the equal protection of the law. And as far as this being a biblical concept, there is a very interesting book that was written by a scholar from the Netherlands, Created Equal is the title of it. And when I said the Netherlands, I'm sorry, I meant to say Israel. And anyway, the subtitle is How the Bible Broke from ancient thought. And we say that in the Declaration of Independence, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal. But Berman in his book says, if there was anything that the ancient world thought was self-evident, it was that people were not created equal. You have people who are royal, people who are not. You have people who have great ability, people who don't. People aren't created equal, not at all. And the framers didn't mean, when they spoke about equal laws, they didn't mean that everybody was entitled to the same wealth or the same status. They meant that people had the same place at the starting line, not at the finish line. They meant that everyone is equally loved by God, that we have the common way of salvation through the shed blood of our Lord Jesus Christ, and that the laws protect all persons equally. That's their concept of law. They're going to frame such just and equal laws. Now, I mentioned that they had established a peace with the chief Massasoit and the Wampanoag. And one of the things that they would do is one of their provisions was that whatever, you know, they brought the concept of trial by jury. That was an Anglo Saxon concept that appears to have come to them from the old Germanic laws. But the idea of when, a, when there was an offense that involved an Indian, there would be Indians serving on the jury. A very interesting idea. And now they weren't perfect in this regard and they didn't live up to these ideals completely. Nobody does. But they sowed the seeds. And you see in them a good faith attempt to practice these things. Anyway, so because of all of this, they promised due submission to the laws and the leaders of their colony. And that, as we say, is the Mayflower Compact in the year of our Lord, 1620. Now, let's think about some of the influence that the Mayflower Compact has. In following years, they would be enacting laws, and among the laws that they will enact here will be a criminal justice system. That criminal justice system will include Certain capital crimes, murder, bestiality, and later others were added. We think about the, what some call the witch craze that took place up in Salem in the 1680s, where you have 20-some convicted witches who are executed. None of them were burned. Most of them were by hanging. One was pressed to death, but you don't have witch-burning up there, like is commonly suspected, but the pilgrims were a little kinder and gentler than the Puritans. In fact, in Plymouth, you have only two people charged with witchcraft. One of them, the case never went to trial. The other, the person was found not guilty. And so a different situation. In Salem, some call it a witch craze, and it's very easy to call it a witch craze. If you don't believe that there is such a thing as witches, if you believe that this is just something of the imagination, then this is mass hysteria or whatever other term you might give to it, psychological, political explanations, that maybe there is such a thing as a witch, then that makes it a little more complicated. It doesn't mean that those who were convicted were in fact witches. It doesn't mean that convicting them or Executing them is the right thing to do, but it does complicate the issue considerably Anyway, so we look at all these things and we see that we said the jury system that they enacted Rights of criminal defendants the presumption of innocence the right to a preliminary hearing grand jury indictment We see the right of the jury to nullify laws and so on protection against self-incrimination It was a very remarkable system, and the precursor of ours today.
1: And we welcome you back to our final segment of Constitution Classroom today on the Loving Liberty Radio Network. We're with Colonel John Eitzmo from the Foundation for Moral Law, Colonel, you were just telling us about uh, how uh, the, the first systems established by those uh, pilgrims when they arrived here had influence on the systems that would later follow.
0: Absolutely. And looking for a reference here that I'm going to give you here. But one of the systems that follows later is going to be the United Colonies of New England, where these colonies of New Hampshire and Connecticut and Massachusetts, and there are several colonies together that are later called Massachusetts, they form together in what we are calling here the United Colonies of New England. And as they do so, they reaffirm the old view of the pilgrims themselves, where, as they say, whereas we all came into these parts of America with one and the same end, and aim, namely, to advance the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ, and to enjoy the liberties of the gospel in purity with peace. Well, they put together this alliance at that time with the same purpose that was set forth there in the Mayflower Compact. And then we come, of course, to some of the issues that take place in the 1680s. On the 1680s, one of the biggest issues is we're seeing conflict in England between the royalists The Stuart kings, you'd seen first James the first, then Charles the first, and then James or Charles the second, and then James the second. Now, James the second was a Roman Catholic king. The Puritans agreed that he could serve as king because he was in his 60s, did not have a male heir, and so they assumed that he wouldn't be serving very long. But then, when he had a male heir, they decided that. He needed to be deposed, and so they did so in what was called the Glorious Revolution. Now, this Glorious Revolution, as they called it, it was a bloodless revolution, and in fact, one of the things they did was they came to King James II, as he is in his summer palace, and the Guards that come to arrest him inform him that he should not try to escape because all of the front entrances to the palace are guarded. Now, there's a clear implication that they subtly were making there, and that's that the doors to the back entrances are not guarded, and if you want to make an escape, this would be a good time to do so. James got the message, and he did so, and went to France, and so Now we see Protestantism ruling in France and we see this glorious revolution, the overthrow of the King of England and putting in Protestants, King William and Queen Mary in their place. And anyway, so the colonists are watching all this. This is the 1688, the colonists are watching and they're thinking, well, if they can overthrow a King in England, maybe we can do something similar here in the United States should the need arise. And one thing was happening in America at this time, and that's that some of the royalist governors who had been appointed by King Charles II and by James II were acting in a very authoritarian manner. And so several of these were forced to abdicate the throne, and the colonists were involved saying, we have full authority to remove this, king, this governor, Edmund Andros in Massachusetts, for example, because he was appointed by James and James is no longer king William and Mary are now on the throne and so we are free to force him to resign and they did and then of course we come to the American War for Independence in 1776 where we see one of the most eloquent documents ever drafted the Declaration of Independence that sets forth the grievances against the king, and says that because he has committed these offenses against the laws of nature and of nature's God, he is a tyrannical king, and as the Declaration says, he is therefore unfit to be the ruler of a free people. And so, the Declaration of Independence, which really is kind of a continuing of those ideals of the Mayflower Compact, they separate America from the mother country. This wasn't a revolution in the classic sense of the word. They weren't seeking to overthrow King George III in England. They were simply acting in interposition, seeking to make America separate from the mother country. In fact, Alexander Hamilton wrote shortly after the war that not that much has changed. He said the laws are the same, property is in the same hands, local government is in the same hands, All that has changed is the seat of the national government. and The American War for Independence is sometimes referred to as a conservative revolution. In fact, it was really property landowners and fathers and husbands and so on, who were simply fighting to preserve their rights against the usurpations of an English king. Then we come to the Treaty of Paris of 1783, this is the treaty by which England finally recognizes the independence of the United States of America. And in that Treaty of Paris, it begins with the words, in the name of the most holy and undivided Trinity. And again, a distinctively Christian concept. We then move to the Constitution of the United States, and that comes just a few years after that of the convention in seventeen eighty seven and notice how it begins it begins with the words "We the people once again, the contractual idea of government, we the people that we are going to ordain and establish this constitution for the United States of America, and the principles that they used in the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution. Number one, that there is a higher law of God to which all human law must conform. Number two, that man has a sinful nature, and therefore he cannot be trusted with absolute power or with complete freedom. We need government to rule over him, but we also can't trust our rulers with absolute power either because Our rulers have the same sinful nature as everybody else, and therefore, they are going to abuse their powers if we don't carefully restrain them. And so that's the idea of the Constitution, giving government enough power to govern effectively and restrain that power so it does not become tyrannical and oppressive. We see that by the provision in the Tenth Amendment that all power is not delegated to the Federal government or prohibited to the states are reserved to the states or to the people. In other words, government has only the power that we, the people, have given it. Separation of powers into federal, state, and local levels. Again, that's an idea that the pilgrims probably derived from the Dutch and brought over here. And it lives again with the decentralized government that our framers gave us with the United States Constitution the checks and balances that we see between the branches and levels of government, individual rights, and likewise, the role that religion plays in establishing the character of the nation. But point is, the words of the Mayflower Compact live on. And those words of the Mayflower Compact, I would argue, are really what is formative in what becomes the United States of America. And one of the things I love to do when I go back to Plymouth, I love to go up to the Burial Hill. You have several interesting places like this. You have, first of all, the sarcophagus that looks out over the harbor there. It's a stone tomb, you might say, where the bones are gathered of these pilgrims that died in that first winter. And as we... Think of them, and as we look to them, we remember that about half of the people who came over died in that first winter, and the pilgrims in the dark of night would take those bones and bury them in very shallow graves because they didn't want the natives to know how many of them had died and how weak they had become. And then you can go up to see those who were buried there on Burial Hill, and there on Burial Hill, you will see... These graves, some of them are jagged pieces of rock, and I look at those and I think about that hymn, great, great hymn that, O oh God, beneath thy guiding hand, our exiled fathers crossed the sea, and when they trod the wintry strand with prayer and psalm, they worshipped thee, Law, freedom, truth, and faith in God those exiles carried o'er the waves, and where their pilgrim feet a trod, the God they trusted guards their graves. May you have a blessed Thanksgiving.